Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, House, on the trail, and behind the scenes. In today's episode, I talk with Republican lawmaker Ted Yoho, who represents Florida's 3rd District. You may remember Yoho's name from a story over the summer, in which he challenged Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over remarks she made on poverty. But that matter turned into something entirely different. And the congressman discusses the aftermath of that interaction, as well as times he has challenged leaders of his own party, including President Trump. But mostly we discuss Yoho's work on behalf of his North Central Florida district, including representing constituents who oppose him and how he nominates candidates for the military service academies. But first we start off with the recent congressional elections. Here we go. Question for you. First of all, can I get your reaction? I understand that I'm going to ask you about your legislative accomplishments and how to be a good congressperson, but I want to get from you your reaction to the House election. Oh, I I thought it was good. Um, And I think there's going to be more seats that come in on the Republican side. And I think it's a good repudiation of that uh, progressive, um, liberal progressive agenda that the squad has. And um, I think it's going to be good. Have you talked to other Republicans in the conference? I mean, I can only imagine what they must be saying right now, because if you look at the predictions going into this, y'all were supposed to lose something like five to 15 seats. Yeah. But instead you picked them up. And if, if, the election goes like as it's sort of trending, pick, picking up Republican seats at a time when a Democrat is elected to the White House. What reaction have you have you heard from your your colleagues? Again, it goes back to you know the the polling definitely was wrong. So you know the pollers. I heard somebody say the pollsters uh, in the future will say they'll give their opinion and they say they'll say you want fries with that? Right, right, exactly. You want fries? That's how important the job will be. But we were hopeful that we would pick up seats, but we didn't think we'd pick up that many. I thought we were going to change the ones we did in Florida, you know, just from the people I talked to. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and you're talking about Donna Shalala and yeah, Newcastle Powell. Yeah, right. And we thought Charlie Chris would go too, but oh. um, he didn't. And, you know, I can work with Charlie. Um, well, not anymore. I can't. Not anymore. <laughs> um, but overall oh, in the country, you know, the sentiment to, to the people I talked to, and you heard Kevin McCarthy, um, the Democrats overplayed their hand. They pushed this liberal progressive agenda. And I think the fallout is going to come on Nancy Pelosi come uh, the vote for the Speaker of the House. Um, the left wing of the Democratic Party are going to blame her for losing the election because she didn't swing and go to their side hard enough. So they're going to hold her accountable. And uh, you're going to see, I, I predict in two years, you're going to see a lot of the, the radical left get thrown out, kind of like the Tea Party. You know, you look at the people that came up with that first wave of the Tea Party, probably half of them aren't here anymore. And I'm one, but I'm leaving voluntarily. But I think you'll see more moderate Democrats come in, as you saw more moderate Republicans come in. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I was talking to Dave Schweikert. He was saying something interesting because I was asking about Speaker Pelosi's power, how how traditionally she has had a lot of power. And, and traditionally, the Speaker has a lot of power, which I want to get into later with you about running for Speaker. Um, but uh, right. That's, a but that, that's, that's right. But but he was saying something that's interesting. He said, you know, the Speaker doesn't have as much power as that that person once did because now it's these outside groups that are essentially funding a congressperson. I mean, if you look at how much money AOC took in, she took in like seventeen million dollars, and and her party still lost a lot of seats. And so, and she hasn't been beholden necessarily to Speaker Pelosi. So, <laughs> the dynamics seem so strange these days. And and if and if Biden is elected, how is he how is he going to be able to manage all that? I don't know, Molly. When you look at that, uh, I can tell you right now, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer have been stripped of their power. <clears throat> I know that firsthand because when I had my discussion with uh, my colleague from New York, I got called into the Kevin's office and he said, you're going to have to apologize. I says, for what? He goes, for what you called. I won't go into all that. I said, well, I didn't call. And he goes, he goes, Ted, he goes, the squad 
has put so much pressure on Stenny that they want to censure you. And so we go through that and that's what led to that, uh, my apology. And this is where I want to lead you to as far as who has the power. So Stenny was there after I got done. He goes, I heard the gentleman. I think he was very sincere and earnest in his apology. I accept it. And I'm sure Miss Ocasio-Cortez will too. Well, they were so mad at him. They demanded a, a privileged motion to speak for an hour on the House floor with as busy as we are and as little as we've been there. That's how much pressure they have on them because she has targeted, you know, James Clyburn. Uh, Daniel Lipinski, uh, Elliot Engel, you know, and they they went after their own. Lacey Clay. Yeah. And so they're going after people because they have the cloud. They have seven. She has seven million followers. And as you said, she raised 17 million dollars. So she really doesn't need to listen to Nancy Pelosi. And uh, they're afraid of her. And you've seen Nancy and Steny get more and more to the left. And uh, I think it's a dangerous thing for their party. I think it's a good thing for us that they're going that way because that led to what you saw in this election. First of all, tell me about Kat, your your um, your successor, who was it, who worked for you in your office. Tell us about her. She, this is the woman who's coming in. And let just so my audience knows, when you were elected in 2012, you said you're only going to be there for eight years. And you're actually right. one of the few, <laughs> one of the few members of, the, of Congress who actually sticks to the self-imposed term limit. Heard but, that. I, a lot of people don't do that, but. You and Francis Rooney, what's up with Florida? But um, tell, tell us a little bit about Kat, the, the woman who's coming in to succeed you. Or I, should is, say, I should say representative elect, excuse me. There you go. Um, Kat came to me at 23 years of age and I learned right off, she was like a political savant. <laughs> she she has the political gene. She was with me uh, with us for three days, her first three days, never met her. We talked over the phone and and uh, I did my research, talked to her references, and they all said the same thing. If you can hire her and have her come work for you, you'll be you'll be impressed. Within three days, not knowing the district, she did all of her political, you know, all that stuff, looked at maps and demographics. And we had 13 counties. I live in Alachua County, uh, which incidentally has 44,000 more registered Democrats. She huh. looked at that and she goes, you're not going to win Alachua County. And I was running against three incumbents in different various positions. One was, a, you know, the congressman. One was a, a, a senator. So this, is like, this is actually during your campaign. You're talking about the original campaign when you were running against this Cliff Stearns. Yeah. And so she goes, but you, if you'll win get 20, 18 to 20% in these counties here, the other bigger ones, and then win these other ones, you know, 80% or more. She goes, you'll win this. We came in with like 3% of what she said. And she was only here for three days. So I'm like, how, how does people, how do people know that? And so she is a worker. I don't know anybody that can work harder than her other than me or maybe <laughs> Trump. And, um, She's great on social media. She'll be a force, and uh, we'll just see what happens. No, this, this does go to what you your legislative accomplishments have been because you have been there for eight years, and you know at various times, at various points throughout that that time, you know, you've said some con- so what some would may consider controversial things may consider, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your legislative accomplishment. What have you accomplished for your district? in those in your time in Congress that you're most proud of? You you look back and say, this is worth it. I think the one thing is the trust and access to a congressional office that they said they have never seen before. We are very open. They said, we have more access to you than we've ever seen. Um, They said, we've never seen a congressional rep in the district as much as you guys. And our whole team was very engaged in the district. Uh, On a local level, the support we've given to the University of Florida um, through the research grants, having Francis Collins come down here, speak to the university, to the students, Jim Bridenstein being there, taking foreign delegations around the district. You know, my district has the number one and two biological startup uh, incubators in the world. They won that award a total of four times. One of them was one at three. So we brought in the Indonesians, the Vietnamese, the Taiwanese, the Japanese. So we brought in four of those, you know, not just four, 
a lot of those delegations in. In fact, I was just up there uh, and the director of it says, we have never had as many delegations come in here as we have with you. And he goes, and we're still talking to those countries. And so businesses will come out of that. What we've done for the agriculture sector, I think there's a lot of accomplishments we've done there that we got in the last for farm program. You know, mm -hmm. the work we've done with uh, citrus and dairy and blueberries and, you know, all that stuff. Fighting for them on the USMCA, uh, I voted against that because that bill is bad for the the southern producers because we're mm -hmm. competitive with uh, Mexico. And then uh, the foot and mouth disease bank, that was our initiative that came out of our office uh, that got into the last farm bill. Looking more, I guess, tangible, the infrastructure projects we've uh, gotten all throughout the district, we've returned close to $2 million out of my MRA of taxpayers' money back to the speakers. And, um, wow. you know, we don't use all that money. And, um, you know, we took up a new, we got a new uh, county, Putnam County, two cycles ago. Okay. Their graduation rate in their high school was 54%. They have one of the lowest health outcomes in the, in the state. Uh, second to the last poorest county in the state and wow. it was failing county we went and we put a project together I says I want to change the dynamics of this county so we created a project called Project Putnam I handed it off to Kat and Jessica since we started that their graduation rate is right at 90 percent they had a, a total of 16 million dollars in federal federal grants prior to us and getting it picking up that county the last cycle they had over 68 million dollars in federal grants and these went to fire trucks road improvements infrastructure improvements wow. those are huge the property value on the average house was like 78 or 80 thousand now it's around 115 thousand wow and the dynamics are people are looking to invest in putnam county because they've seen a a shift and we brought in the business community we brought in civic leaders we brought in the local politicians uh, on a city and a county uh, level, and then we brought in the state representatives, and then I brought in the federal. And so we're all working together on the same thing. And we're still working to get businesses here. I'm working with companies in Thailand to come here. Well, it wasn't that, that's so interesting because when I when I look at your your resume and, when, and you're just looking at paper, it's like, okay, here's this congressman from North Central Florida who came in in 2012. He was sort of an, considered an upstart. He took out, you know, defeated a longtime incumbent Republican lawmaker, Cliff Stearns. He's out, he's probably going to rabble rouse a little bit. Challenges John Boehner for speaker. I mean, then you look at how you're you're the you're the top ranking Republican on the subcommittee, the the Foreign Affairs subcommittee for Asia, right? Asia Pacific proliferation. Then it is possible to be sort of a rabble rouser and actually get stuff done and work with members of the other side. That's a great question, and and it's interesting because my chief. Do, of do staff, you actually know what I asked? Because I just I don't even know what I just asked you. But yeah, I do. I did come up and I did have an agenda and, you know, I just wanted a better country. And uh, my chief of staff told me he was at a meeting and it was like, how does Yoho get to be the chairman of the Asia Pacific subcommittee last Congress, ranking member of this Congress? He doesn't pay his dues. I probably shouldn't say this loud if this is going on. He doesn't pay his dues. He voted against Boehner, the first Congress, ran against him the second, voted against the Republican rules. And it was told to him, the chief of staff, they said, we know where he stands on stuff. And if he says he's going to do it, he'll do it. And if he says he's not going to do it, he won't do it. And we can't change him. So we leave him alone. That's remarkable. I mean, it's, 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 it it's, worked. It worked. And, and how, and I guess my other question is, I've noticed that you are, you co-sponsor legislation, obviously with Democrats. I mean, some of the laws that you've actually I mean, some of the measures that you've co-sponsored have become law. Several of them have been led by Democratic members. And what people want to know is how can, on the one hand, how can lawmakers sort of tweet all these sort of things that seem to be sort of rabble rousing, and then, then the next day sign on to a bill with somebody that they seemingly are opponents of? I mean, how did you get to know members of the opposite party? Like, are you friends with Democrats? Explain that to me. How, how do you get to know people in, in Congress? Sure. I didn't know this, but... Um... I was told, and I forget what there's, you know, those organizations that rank members of Congress. Um, 
it said I was the most conservative member in the Florida delegation, but yet I, I was the most bipartisan too. And I think that's an important balance. Focus on the issue. And if I believe in that issue, I'll work with them to get that issue passed. Kurt Schrader and I have worked, uh, Bobby Scott and I have worked on stuff. I worked with Alan Grayson. It's funny because my tea party said, I was at a tea party meeting. This was my first Congress meeting went great. You know, a lot of cheers and all that people standing up and clapping. Last question. Somebody goes, there's a rumor and I know it can't be true. The rumor is that you're good friends with Alan Grayson. (laughs) The whole room breaks out and laughter like, oh, that can't be true. And I says, Alan and I get along great. And the room had an audible. (gasps) And says, let me tell you something. If somebody like Alan Grayson has a good piece of legislation, that's good for the seniors or good for America. You're telling me because of who he is, you don't want me to sponsor that. I said, that's wrong. And I said, I'll sponsor those kind of bills and work with them to get that passed. You know, and you look at the issue. And I think if you focus on that, I like to talk about purity of purpose. What does this bill do? And let's get it across the finish line. Purity of purpose. That's an interesting way to put it because what, what I'm sort of discovering in these conversations I'm having with lawmakers is that there actually is kind of a lot of bipartisanship going on because a lot more than what you a hear. lot more than what you hear, which is great because that means that my podcast is newsy because nobody knows about all the bipartisanship that's going on. Doing it, you know. Well, look at the Build Act. Look at the Build Act, Molly. You're familiar right. with that, right? Well, vaguely, vaguely. We passed that in the last Congress. That was the largest reform to foreign aid in a good way. Very bipartisan in the House. I worked with Chris Coons. Our team worked diligently on mm-hmm. that. So we were working the House and the Senate bipartisanly, and um, that created the United States International Development Finance Corporation okay. that competes with Belt Road Initiative of China, replaces OPEC, modernizes it. And uh, it, it was a win for this country, but it could only happen in a bipartisan uh, fashion. And, you know, so when you focus on that and keep politics, you can get a lot more done. Right. Um, it, it just It just seems very... I guess now that you, now that you're moving on, what will you miss about Congress? What will you miss about being up on Capitol Hill? Or will you miss anything as you laugh? I wish I'm, I'm going to miss that I could have done more. And, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about the things I believe in on the agriculture side. I wanted the guest worker program uh, that we we worked really. That's probably the hardest we worked on a bill. Um, I'm going to miss not being able to get stuff like that or foreign policy. Uh, I think foreign policy is so critical to this nation and any nation, because if you have strong foreign policy, you have good economic policy, you have good trade policy, those two equate to good, strong national security. And our foreign policy needs to change. And that was one of the driving forces behind the uh, the BUILD Act that created uh, the Development Finance Corps. Gotcha. Well, that's, I guess, it's just, it's such an interesting time to be in Washington, D.C., because... It seems like everything's so divided and I don't know. I think, I think that whoever is in the white house for the next four years is going to have a lot more difficult task than people realize, because I don't think that unity comes with the change of a president. No, unity comes from leadership and that leadership invokes the direction where you want to go. And it's not short-term direction. And that's one, one of the things when I ran that I was going to challenge John Boehner on is I saw a lack of leadership and a vision for this nation. You know, you've been around Washington long enough. The vision for Washington, the long-term vision for Washington is what we're going to do for the funding bill in December. Yep. We should be looking 15, 20 years down the road. What's our health care going to be? What's our national debt going to be? What are we going to do on borders? How are we going to fix immigration? And we should focus on the major issues. <clears throat> and and ha- it has to be bipartisan. If it's not bipartisan, you get what we, you got with the Affordable Care Act. You know, it's all done over here. Right. Or you get with what was done with the American Jobs uh, 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 Tax right. Cut and Jobs Act. You know, the Democrats didn't participate. So they feel like when they get in power, they're going to erase that. And uh, it's not the way this country should be. Well, what do you think is going to happen if Mitch McConnell remains the majority leader? <laughs> I think uh, I think he'll remain that. Um, I don't know anybody looking to challenge him unless he just decides to step down. And I think you'll see if we got rid of all the, the politics and politics, 
and focused on issues, I think we could move this country, you know, ahead a lot in a short period of time and, and solve a lot of these issues that, you know, they want to talk about um, that we've talked about too long. And that was one of the things that brought people like me from nowhere into politics because they talk about fixing things, but never fix them. So you really weren't nowhere because you were actually fixing animals. You were, you were, you were healing our, our pets, well, and working animals because you were a large animal vet, right? So I'm assuming you were working with horses and cows and- cattle. I did mainly the farm animals, but we had a small animal practice. And I worked on, shoot, I've worked on snakes and lions and bears and just all kinds of things. Manatees, eagles any manatee? And, eagles? What did you do to an eagle? I did that when I was in vet school. You know, one got it brought in shot and we had to nurse it back and feed it and all that. So it's been a, it, it's been great. And I, I think a lot of that transferred into politics because when you look at an animal that can't speak, you got to go through your assessments, you know, your subjective and objective do your lab tests, you come up with the best diagnosis right. you can, and then that equates to a treatment plan. And I look at a lot of this stuff, here's the problem, what caused the problem, right. how do we treat the problem, and how do we prevent it? And I guess sort of like 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 veterinary medicine, you know, having had an animal that had cancer anyway, there's different treatment options you can choose as a pet owner. Sure. You can either do, you can either do chemo, whatever, whatever it is, but there's different options, but first you have to get that diagnosis and the, right. and the possible solution. The compromise with me talking about the different options to you and which, which one do we want to go right. with? Um, that's just, that's so interesting. So are you going to go back? Do you think to, to help an animals? I have that option, uh, but probably, Oh. I'm 65, worked 30 years in that field, and it's been good. It's, it's been good. Are you? What are you going to be keeping your eye on in Washington? Now that you've been part of Washington, what are you going to be watching in terms of how Congress evolves and what happens over the next two to three years? I think the biggest thing is I'm going to be focused on ag policies, and I'm going to be focused on foreign affairs. And, you know, the nonsense has to stop up there. I've attributed some of that. Um, but I think as members are up there longer, they, be, they, they, they obviously mature in the process. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we have to keep in mind what America really is. You know, it's, it's bigger than a president It's because they come and go. It's bigger than a Republican or Democratic Party. It's those ideals, Molly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we hosted the Indonesians on a trip in the, our district. And the ambassador says, you know, our country, when it got its independence, they could have chosen any form of government to set up. Mm -hmm. And our founders of our country had never been to America, but they were very well studied on your founding principles and your founding fathers. And so they adopted that system. They could have taken uh, the UK, the German, any, any country in the world. And it's those ideals that people around the world want for them because they know that empowers the person. You know, our system doesn't guarantee equal outcome. It guarantees equal opportunity. And for the people that fall behind, we have programs for them to help them achieve. But you have to be willing to put in the effort, as Frederick Douglass said in his uh, self-made man speech, you know, you know, you can't rely on anybody but yourself. And thank God we're in this country where there's ample opportunity. Speaking of Frederick Douglass, where do you think this police reform issue is going? Is it going anywhere? And why wasn't Congress able to get anything done? It's politics. You know, when there's a crisis like that, people, oh, we got to do something. We got to do something. And then it just kind of fades away. You have elections, you know, people come and go and, and they'll bring it up at the next time. And you know, what we really have to look at is the underlying cause of, of why, why is there, you know, so many more African-Americans being killed by policemen. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of studying on this and, you know, the African-American population makes up oh, anywhere from 16 to 20%. Um, but yet it says the young men, black male account for about 75% of the violent crimes. So they're put into a situation. So why are they involved in more crimes? Well, then you look at uh, unwed households or, you know, uh, a single parent household. 
and you see that more people in that demographics are born into a single parent household. And we know people that are born there tend to be brought up in poverty or they get into trouble, they drop out of school. So we know what the causes are. We just have to address them as a nation. And I brought this up and people, oh, I can't believe you're talking about stuff like that. That is, that is so insensitive. I didn't make the facts. I just see them and it goes back to my veterinary career. You assess, you find out the causes, let's fix this and put the money in helping people you know, but what were they? What were they saying was it was insensitive? Just just diagnosing the the problem because I I don't I mean what what would what would be insensitive about that? I don't I I don't mean to well, sound stupid, but I give a perfect example that Bill after uh, uh, it was the day they brought in uh, uh, John Lewis into the for the viewing in the Capitol for his right 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 that Marco Rubio bill to do another study on African men adults and young adults to find out why they're not adapting in society. Uh Well, the studies have been done over and over and over again. The University of Florida did one two years ago, and it comes down to a single parent household. And, you know, we can address all that stuff. You know, I don't like the narrative that there's systemic racism in this country. I talk, I have a lot of black friends and we talk and they like, you know, that's a narrative that's false. In fact, I could read you some stuff off of my thing my uh, text message. Well, just do I it. Just, just do it. No, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I can see Brian just like shaking his head. <laughs> I know he is poor Brian because <laughs> he's going to go with the fallout when you air this. I won't. I'll be gone. <laughs> no, I mean, and I have those conversations right. with people and, and um, we need to address those. Um, I think what's interesting is so, like seeing at least to this point, the people who've come out to support the president and there were quite a few minority groups that came out to support the president. And when I talk to my liberal friends, they just say, how can the, how can these, how can these people in minority groups support this president? I'm like, well, they do. So what does that say to you? Does that say maybe that the policies that the president is espousing or promoting may have a greater impact on what these communities want them, perhaps, and never, you know, and it's just something gets lost there. But I think that was what's been really interesting about the election results is the number of minority groups that have supported this president. Sure. I mean, you look at Byron Jones, got, I think that's a Daniels that got elected in Florida in Francis Rooney's seat. Oh, okay. I think that's his okay. name. All right. Um, African American man, he was a banker, I think. Right. Um, conservative, mm-hmm. uh, Burgess Owens. I, I don't know if he won his race. I, I think, don't think it, he yeah. Did. Well, I think it's still too close. It's still, yeah. And so you're seeing, you know, they're standing up. My black friends, the males will call me and, and they're strong conservatives and they support president Trump. But the community they said is if you go against, you vote Republican, you're against the African-American. You heard what Maxine Waters said. I mean, why is she not held accountable? Um, she will disown any black person that votes Republican. And I think I would I would advise people that want to carry that conversation on first to look at Dinesh D'Souza's video mm-hmm. movie on I think it was Hillary's America, okay. and pay particular attention when Lyndon Johnson was on Air Force One coaxing people to sign the Civil Rights Act. Listen to what the president of the Democratic Party of this nation said about the African-Americans. That's when my black friend said the family unit of the African-American family started to break down. Because if you look back historically, pre the 1960s, they had a, uh, the, the black community had a very strong nuclear family. And I had a Democrat uh, not a, not a Democrat, but a black Republican said the Democratic policies to him are designed to give you what you want to keep you where you're at, so that you're on a program from the government. And I think you're seeing a lot of people waking up to that. We want to empower the individual to live the American dream, and it's there for everybody. Because you can look at different demographics. Look at the Vietnamese, uh, the Cambodia. Um, any group around here, they don't have the stigma of, of slavery. And it was a terrible scar on this land. Right. But yet they have progressed 
talk to blacks that come from a different country here. They have a different perspective. Right, no, it's, it's true. I think- yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard that because, I mean, I, gr- I grew up in Stockton, California, which had we had everybody. We had Vietnamese, Hmong, Cambodian, because it was it yeah. was the most it was the farthest natural inland port in California. And so after the Vietnam War, all the you know, all these immigrants would, would come in and they basically stop, get off and get in Stockton. But we but it was a lot of Latino community and African-American. And it is interesting to see the different how the different um, you know, groups of individuals have progressed and moved past. I think that, you know, and I studied African-American history in in college. And I think, again, and you mentioned this as well, the big differentiator is that those individuals came here willingly, the Vietnamese and whatnot, they wanted, and ancestors of, you know, a lot of African-Americans who are here and who grew up here did not. And I think that that is the big differentiator. And so when I talk to conservative African-Americans, I mean, you look at somebody like Tim Scott, who deals with a lot of these issues like getting pulled over, driving while black and, sure. and deals with that. That doesn't necessarily mean that he has to support everything that the Democrats want. He has a different way of tackling the issues that are impacting his community. And I think that it's strange that there's so much intolerance among sectors of the Democratic Party for a different way of thinking on in terms of on those issues. It just, it doesn't seem, I don't know. I, mean, I guess maybe it's all or nothing thinking, but. You know, unfortunately we'll have racism in this country forever because there's people in there. And, you know, I heard Tim Scott say that and I was on the Republican conference call after uh, George Floyd mm-hmm. and Tim Scott made that statement. You know, I've got to have this conversation with my son. My dad had that conversation. There were six of us in my family, six boys. He had that conversation with us. If you get pulled over by a policeman, it's yes, sir, no, sir. You do this. I had that conversation with my son um, if the, and my, my three, my two daughters, not that they were angelic. No, no, but my parents, wrong. my parents taught me to respect law enforcement and fight them with a right. lawyer afterwards. <laughs> well, then go back to what we said in the beginning. You know, why did police respond to that? Is there racism? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying there's not, but. When 75% of the violent crimes are caused by a certain demographics, there's more caution. And, you know, it's something that educating our kids, building strong families, um, getting these kids through schools. And, uh, you know, the American dream's out there for anybody. But if you feel society owes you something, then you got a chip on your shoulder. You're, you didn't bring anybody over here. I didn't bring anybody. Uh, people living today were never enslaved. It was something that was terrible that happened on this country. And we had the Civil War set over 700,000 people lost their lives in this. We're dealing with something in Japan and South Korea. Uh, there dislike that happened during the wars. There was the comfort women. There was the enslavement of people working in the factories. The Germans, the, the, the Poles, the Jews and all that. Germany enslaved people. Slavery is going on today. We can't, we can't change what happened. There has to be patience. There has to be forgiveness. But then there also has to be the acceptance of forgiveness. And I think the best thing I've ever seen on that is up there in Charlottesville when that crazed person went in there into that black church and shot all those things of race. Wait, do you mean, do you mean Charleston? That, was that Charleston? It was Charlottesville or Charleston? I think it was Charleston. Charleston. Yeah, it was in South Carolina. Right. And so, and so what did that church do? They didn't condemn them. They didn't right. go after them, prayed for them and forgave them. That's what needs to happen in this country. You know, we'll never solve that. We'll never come to an agreement on that. Just realize it happened. And that's why tearing these statues down, that's not good. We have to remember that history. If we're not going to remember it, you're going to wash it away and you will repeat right. it. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's so interesting to see, you know, and I've been doing a lot of um, TV hits on CBS. So that's, that's kind of what I I like to do about Congress, right. To explain, to break down Congress and, you know, always these hearings, these, whenever there's like the police reform, there's like massive issues that are going on impeachment. It's like, we've got to figure out what Congress is going to do. And I have to say, listen, tempers are flaring. (laughs) This is what's going to happen. I don't know how much of this in terms of the police reform, will actually get enacted because they're so close but so far away. And there's a lot of interests that are 
controlling things from the outside. And it's difficult to actually get a solution to some of these things. And I think that's when people get really frustrated, people who are outside of obviously the Beltway and say, and disapprove of what Congress does. But I think what's interesting is that the more I've had conversations like this with people like you and talk to members who represent their, obviously their district and hear about stories of success in the district where you've actually impacted people's lives and brought businesses back to your district, that's a very important service that you provide as a member of Congress. So it's beyond sort of like these diverse, divisive, massive issues that are in the headlines and, and back to like the casework your office, I'm sure, has done oh. with veterans. And I saw your veterans work, right? That's very important. We, we have uh, brought in five VA clinics, walk-in clinics, women's health clinics, um, mental health right. exams, and all that. We have done a lot in this district for the veterans, Social Security for the elderly, or the person that has uh, permanent disability. Right. You know, we're with them constantly or immigration issues. Now, those are the things that the people in our district, is an, we have an incredible team. And the success I've had is based on the team of people I have around me. So what advice would you have for, for yourself eight years ago, coming into Congress, how to navigate Congress? What advice do you wish you had known or um, followed? No, I for one, and we knew why we ran. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't do this for a job. We did it for a cause. And it was some of those things we talked about mainly making sure the American dream is here for future generations. And then look at the expertise you might have or where is your forte? Mine was agriculture, obviously. A lot of people don't understand how I got into foreign affairs. I've been reading foreign affairs policy and articles since 1974 when we had the oil embargo from Iran. It just, it perplexes me how a country, I didn't even know where it was, can affect me here in this country. And so I've been a student of uh, foreign policy. I read The Clash of Civilizations before I got into Congress by uh, Samuel. And if you know why you're here, that leads you to the committees you want to be on. And then learn how to be a good player. Um, I wouldn't recommend everybody to do what I did. Um, You know, I have a different personality, (laughs) a lot of people, and I can get by with some things. And, you know, and and I might have gotten along further had I play differently and um you know for so for the new member why are you here what do you want to do for your district get on the committees that are going to have the impact and then work your committees and try to stay out of the political bs that's up here um and i wish i'd have done that better uh i could have and you know be true to yourself and purity purpose on bills let me ask i'm going to follow up with you on the um stay out of the bs that's up here and I'm not going to get into the details of it because it, whatever's out there is out there, you know, with this AOC, whatever thing earlier this summer. My question for you is, and you're talking about the personal privilege, the resolution or the, the floor time, not necessarily like what happened. My question for you is how, as a person on a human level, did you deal with it? Did you handle that? Because that was, I mean, Regardless of, of what happened, it took something that sort of was a private conversation, whatever it was, and made this huge mm-hmm. issue out of something that only really you guys were privy to. I mean, how do you deal with that as a human? Really? It was just us. Um, well, you have to look at what was the conversation about. It was challenging policies on really radical ideas. And um, the fallout that came from the false narrative that I called her that she says, I called her this. I never called her that. She knows that. Um, the fallout was there was over 50, close to 20,000 hate emails, phone calls to all my offices. I've got one in DC. I've got four in the district. Wow. And I mean, the vile languages that were coming out of her support supporters We've had death threats. We had fecal matter sent to my wife and to my kids. Oh, that's terrible. Um, my kids were going to be raped. They were going to get killed. And we had one that guy says, you are effing dead, yo. In fact, your whole family is effing dead. That led to an investigation by Capitol Hill. They did a remarkable job. They found the person. Um, that person will probably go away for a period of time because it wasn't only me. He went ahead and... Um, threaten another lawmaker. And so that person will probably go into prison who is probably an AOC supporter more than likely um, or part of Antifa. 
And so the fallout is the resources for something that never should have gone viral. It was a conversation challenging a specific person who was advocating defunding the police 100%. And at the same time telling people, if you're hungry and you're struggling to make your uh, rent payment, feeding your family it's okay to steal a loaf of bread did she say it's that okay i thought she okay. said i thought she kind of said i can I, I can see where you're coming from i don't know if she said it was okay but i get i get the point that you were that you're making i can see watch watch town hall. okay she goes it's okay to lift a loaf of bread oh, okay it's not okay to the store it's not okay for my kids watching her telling okay. that you know we, with all the social programs we have in this country that's not acceptable and i will continue to challenge those things and so you said what am i going to do when i'm when I leave, I'll keep an eye on that stuff and you'll hear from me on that. You know, we can't advocate those kind of things. Let's get people in the right programs and help them and give them a hand up instead of a hand. And, out. and for the record, for the listeners out there, I, I can't, I can see you challenging AOC on that, but I can also see you challenging a man on that as well. I don't, I don't know. Cause I wasn't there, but, but all I'm saying is it wasn't, it wasn't misogyny. It was an, a policy that, is damaging to this country. And, um, you know, I've challenged John Boehner. I've challenged Kevin McCarthy. I don't have a problem. I've challenged the president. Heck, when the president got elected, he wanted me to support uh, Paul Ryan's uh, health care thing. I said no. And it was really funny because I'm in the Oval Office and there's you know, 12 of us. And he'd go around to each member. I really need your help. And people would say, no, nah, I'm not going to support you. He came to me and I says, I'm not going to support you. And he goes, why not? I said, it doesn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> yes, it does. It's going to be bucket one, bucket two. But I said, Mr. President, it might happen in bucket one. It could happen in bucket two, but I'll guarantee it ain't going to happen in bucket three. And if it does, I, you, I'll come to the White House and wash your limousine <laughs> any day of the week. So he goes around the room again and members were changing. And he points at me and he goes, I'm not even going to ask you. <laughs> so, and, you know, so hell, I don't know why I told you that. Story. No, I think it's funny. I think because it's it's interesting. It's sort of the interactions that lawmakers have with with the president. Oh, I was challenged. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. And what I was going to say is, you know, having covered you, I don't think it was something like you're picking on somebody who's smaller than you. I don't think it matters what size people are. I think if you disagree with them, you disagree with them. And that's it. What I do. Policy. Policy. Policy, well, and, period. Exactly. And actually, the reason I, I brought that up is because um, I was doing some research on a different map and I had been looking back, I'd been looking at the Military Service Academy nominations and I came across a recent study from Yale. And, and, and Yale's Law Center, I think it's their Veterans Center, was basically saying that members of Congress don't nominate enough women to go to the Military Service Academies. But you actually rank among the top 20 of office of offices. Yeah, you're like you have 33% of your recommendations. I'm not sure how many women actually applied to be nominated. I'm not, I never saw that number. So I can't say whether or not I don't know what it's based on, but you are actually way up there. Well, that process, and that's one of the neatest things is we get a call from you know the different agencies or departments of the military. So, and they'll give us a list of who's been accepted. And we've had more than our fair share of people get accepted. Um, you know, we're only supposed to, I think, to have four or six. And we've had up to 10 in a year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's, we've got, a, like I said, I've got a great team. And so the applicants come right. in. We put together the review board. And we pick different people that have been in either the military com- uh, academies or the retired military, so they know what the kids are getting. So, into. so these are people from the and community, them, right? The people from the community to interview. Oh, yeah. Okay, because I was going to say, awesome. and that the other point that Gail was making is that it's different for every office. Every office has a different nominating process. So I wanted to ask you about this. So, so if I was applying to go to like Annapolis, I would submit my application to to Congressman Yoho's office, and then yep. we go through a review process out of this board that we put together. I give them no direction. And so these people go in there and they interview each student and all, I think we'll have three or four or five people that will interview. The first year I put it together, I put a, uh, a mother who had lost her son in training. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, it was very, it was very tragic. And she wanted to do it. Uh, there was a, um, a West Point graduate, Harvard business. He was a ranger. 
<clears throat> and so we put people like that. We had people that were disabled from the military in there. And uh, they, uh, cause I wanted those kids to know, you know, it's not just wearing a nice uniform with shiny stuff on it. This is reality. Right. And I want them to do that. And to be able to call that, that student, this is neat thing. To be able to call them and do that and say, congratulations. Or sometimes we would call the parents and the parents, we would say, if you really want to do this in a neat way, let's get your school principal to have a, a rally in the auditorium, a special meeting, but the students don't know anything about it. So the parents are there, the principals are there, their friends are there. And you bring these kids in there and you're able to do that. Wow. That's a neat that, that sounds, I mean, exactly. It's sort of like the other nominations that Congress deals with. And those are the real life ones that have a major impact. I mean, that that's very interesting that you do that because I see some offices and I look at their websites and it's just kind of like, submit your application. That is a neat thing to be able to tell that kid, you've just been accepted to one of the most elite schools in the world. And um, their parents are there, their grandparents or their younger brother or sister. Right. That's a neat thing. And you know, I'll miss yeah, And your parents don't have to pay for college for you. <laughs> and you don't have to pay back student loans. You have to serve time. <laughs> But, well, you know, that's something that you're working yeah. towards anyway. Um, well, no, I'm, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear that from you because it's a really important part of the work that, again, Congress does. And there are a lot of young people out there want to know more about how to apply for these things. Like, how do, you, how do I get to go to West Point? That's a good, I mean, I didn't have a clue of that growing up. You know, I came from a broken family. Nobody was focused on that. I was the only one in my college, my, my family that went to college. And, um, and so... People need to know about this. So we promote it all year long. And again, I've got Dorothy Richardson that runs that program for us, and she does a phenomenal job. And then Dave Hill, he works on that. Kat, who's coming up there, she worked on that. And like I said, it's a whole team effort. And it's just neat to see the kids show up. And I'll speak at that first meeting when they're all going through the process. And then I bow out. You know, I don't want to show I'm giving favoritisms to anybody, and I've never pulled strings for anybody. Oh, wow. Now, do, what, what happens once they are accepted because they apply through your office? You nominate somebody, like, say that I wanted to go to Annapolis. You would send my application. Say that you decided to nominate me. You'd give my nomination to Annapolis. Does Annapolis call your office back first, or do they call they to say, we've accepted these nominees? And then you got, right. and so your office gets the. Get an email. We get an email. On, you but know, you guys get to break the news, we, essentially, is what you're saying. This really is a neat thing. The excitement on it. I get choked up when I talk to the kids because I, I know where they're heading to, the success they can have. Right. And it's just so neat because it is such an incredible experience. And, you know, my wife and I have been blessed to have some success in our life. And I know where I started off. And I know what's, what's in front of them. Right. And it's so neat to be able to get them. And, uh, well, that's really cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you so much for talking to me and telling me about these things because, you know, I love Congress. I know it's a pain in the neck, but I mean, I was a congressional page when I was 16 years old. I I, I, re really? I received a similar call from my congressperson at, and who said, you're going to be a page and, and you're going to go away for the entire school year. My parents weren't as excited about that because they didn't think I was actually going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I said, I'm like yelling yeah. around this, but I'm going away for my junior year. And my dad's like, wait, what happened? <laughs> but it was, yeah, really. it was really exciting. And I just remember that's a great program. it was, I wish they'd bring it back be because, you know, some of the most incredible people I've met have been through that, that program. And it's one of the reasons why I love Congress so much and, and understand it. And, and I want to sort of share that because you guys do a lot of important things for people in your districts. And it is important for the veteran who's disabled and needs help navigating the system. It's important for the people who need their social security oh, yeah. checks. It's important. All this other baloney that goes on that keeps my business in business, that's one thing. But in terms of like the guts, the meat and the potatoes of what you do, it's important stuff. I wish you more on that. We've got a caseworker on Veterans Affairs, mm -hmm. Dave Hill. He will work and work and work on an issue. We've had settlements from the VA of over 300,000, over 200. These people have been waiting for years. They'll come to our office. And we have one lady. This was a funny story. Um, she came into a Jiffy store 
and she was complaining about the VA's cheating her spouse and, you know, this and that. And somebody goes, why don't you call your congressman? And she goes, who is it? And he goes, Ted, oh, she goes, I hate that guy. <laughs> they gave her my number, our office uh-huh. number. She called and they got a very favorable settlement in a fairly short period of time. And it just, it just blows me away that, you know, people won't get help because they don't like the person here. I don't look at, I don't look at color. I don't look at gender. I don't look at age. I look at people. And if you have a problem, we're here to help you because I'm in the people service business is what I look at. And I I keep screwing up and calling my constituents clients or customers, you know, because I come from that industry where we had to service the people. That's what they are. We are, we are customers. We're paying, we're paying a service to you. I mean, like, and that's, it's not even necessarily if you don't like the, the congressman, it's just almost like, Oh, I can call the congressman about that. I didn't even think about going like the EIP. I'm like, should I call Don Byer? Cause I haven't received it yet. And just, but you know what I mean? Instead of going through the IRS. Oh, I, ask Brian. I get out my personal stuff. I, I would do it on teletown halls. You know, it goes out thousands of right. people. No. Like, you know, people calling me and uh, what a problem. Good. Well, I hope my listeners find out more about this and feel better about calling their representatives, not just to complain, but That's to ask right. for help. Because they work for they you. They work for you. Yeah, exactly. You work for us. Right. But anyway, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I really appreciate it. I will miss you, Molly. Man, I'll, we'll yes, miss I you. Appreciate we'll miss you up on Capitol Hill running right. for speaker. Who do you think's going to... Yeah. Well, okay, so here's a question. Who do you think's going to challenge Speaker Pelosi next go around? That, I'm going to watch... I'm going to get a bowl of popcorn and watch that show. I mean, it is going to be interesting to see... Th- the juggling in there and it's going to be interesting and uh, stay tuned for that that series i mean because what happens with the that'll be next, that'll be next season <laughs> that was ted yoho of florida's third district a big thank you to brian Cavaney for setting up the interview and thank you for listening if you enjoyed what you heard please 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 share this episode with a friend or a colleague and leave a rating it really helps to let others find the show On the next episode, I talk with House Budget Chairman John Yarmuth. It's a wide-ranging conversation involving reconciliation, remote voting, and bonding with a member of the House Freedom Caucus over stories about caddying for talented kids on many a golf course. Until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.